0: Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. And today, I am very excited to introduce this guest for this conversation. before I welcome on the show, we, we talk a lot about entrepreneurial public servants, and that means something to us. We stopped saying it at the intro because we used to say, if you're an entrepreneurial public servant, this podcast is for you. But we're also trying to to, to um, encourage public servants to be more entrepreneurial. So we stopped that, but it really is a core value of what we're trying to do here. and. John Burke, who I'm going to welcome to the show, is the economic vibrancy manager for the city of Westminster, and I don't think there's a more entrepreneurial public role out there uh, than what John's doing. Uh, So, John, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, BJ. Great to be here. Absolutely. Pleasure.
0: It's it's great to have you, and I can't wait to dig in, and and you have a number of different projects that are of interest to me uh, in your resume. And I think maybe we'll get to those in your experience. But how we start out the show is always to introduce you and your career path and, and what got you to where you are today. So as far back as, as is relevant, uh, how did you end up in Westminster as the economic vibrancy manager?
1: Yeah, no, appreciate that, BJ. And, you know, having listened to a number of your other interviews, it's always kind of interesting to see how far people go back. So I will go back. Uh, just uh, if you don't mind indulge me for a moment, but, you know, it's funny being an engineer, professional engineer now for uh, the better part of, you know, 25, 30 years, whatever it's been. Um, you know, when I was in high school, man, I never even knew what an engineer was, right? This was not on my radar. In fact, I wanted to fly jets. You know, growing up in Colorado, uh, Air Force Academy, right down the road, seeing jets fly over, I'm like, man, that's, that's, the, that's the job for me. And so I actually applied to the Air Force Academy and, uh, you know, maybe good, bad or indifferent, uh, did not get the appointment, and so, my, uh, my junior, senior year of high school, I was pivoting quickly, trying to figure out what the heck to do in life. And it was, it's so interesting, and maybe like many other people, uh, I remember this random comment from my ninth grade German teacher in high school. And little, I'm in German class learning, you know, uh, Ich bin, whatever, you know, and all this <laughs> stuff. And uh, all of a sudden, I had, you know, Miss Frau Moore walks by me one day and says, Hey, John, you ought to be an engineer. And I'm thinking to so, myself, is it because my clothes don't match? Like, I'm looking at my shoes, <laughs> like I have no personality. I can protect her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what was the evidence that uh, brought her to this conclusion? But nonetheless, you know, you kind of, as a kid, kind of blow it off. Well, there I was, my senior year of high school, thinking, oh, God, what's next? And I remembered that statement. And so I found myself in my counselor's office quickly scrolling through all the different, uh, you know, engineering traits from mechanical, electrical, chemical, and coming across civil. And I'll never forget, because one of the... Uh, statements, identifiers for civil engineering was, if you like being outdoors, you got to be a civil engineer. And, you know, growing up in Colorado, you know, uh, loved hiking, camping, fishing, being outdoors constantly. I was like, that's it. And so with my GPA applied to a number of universities uh, uh, here in Colorado, as well as other states, and going to Colorado State University for a civil engineering degree. And so that was kind of the, the the start of the program for me and um, uh, loved it, fell in love with just the whole industry and what we do in the built environment. Uh, out of college, I uh, went to work for a private sector uh, company that was uh, you know, probably, I think I was employee number 13. So small, small company, which, you know, again, maybe a lot of your uh, listeners can relate to, but that kind of did everything. Soup to nuts, you were the person marketing, you were the guy cleaning up the kitchen, you were the one uh, out collecting invoices, you know, accounts payable, receivable, and doing design work as well. I mean, you know, burning the midnight oil to get projects done. And so after about 10 years of private sector work, I ended up uh, uh, going to the city of Westminster, Colorado, which uh, for those who know it, it's about 119,000 population, really right in the metro Denver area as a first-tier suburb. So we're, you know, 4 or 5 million in that uh, of people in that area. And uh, starting my career, and it's, it's interesting, again, that entrepreneurial public servant statement that you used, B.J., uh, it rings so true to me and many of my colleagues because it really was taking that private sector experience and applying it to the public sector environment in the context of how do we partner and everything we do truly is a public-private partnership. I mean, cities don't typically just do things on their own without the private sector engaging. And so that kind of led me into a couple of great projects I've now uh, one completed and one we're uh, still actively working on for the City of Westminster. Can you tell us a little bit about those projects? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, so yeah, one of the one of my favorite absolutely is something called the uh, the Westminster Station uh, project. So it was part of the, the first commuter rail system that the uh, Denver metro area uh, got through the regional transportation district. And the City of Westminster, it was our very first stop. And so... I got to be one of the lead project managers on. It was about $78 million of total investment from multiple partners uh, in that corridor. But we basically, we took a 100-acre site that was, um, you know, it was a landfill. There was environmental contamination from an old um, dry cleaner that was there. We had floodplain issues. You know, One of the interesting things is the, the floodplain actually covered the rail line that the commuter rail was going to go on by about five feet. And I remember calling up RTD and saying, hey, uh, we got a drainage project. We could solve that for you. Uh, It'll cost you about two million bucks to lower the floodplain, but participate in it. We're happy to do it. Long story short, after a couple years of negotiating an IGA, uh, intergovernment agreement with RTD, uh, we were able to get those funds in place and go build a project that lowered the floodplain, which then importantly allowed access to, I would say, an underserved area of the city in in the adjacent county. And so, Everything that I've ever done again, taking that private sector experience and applying it uh, to these public projects really allows you to think more creatively and outside of the box. And so that particular project there, I'm going to, I'll i probably share a couple uh, really salient points uh, with you today on things that I've learned and applied and, uh, and teach on today. Uh, but then, right on the heels of that, that was about four or five years worked on that project. We got our grand opening uh, done again, managed a public parking garage. We had tunneling operations, uh, roadway widening uh, again, major drainage project, built a lake that didn't exist before again, oh, a lot wow. of fun things. Um, and then, right on the heels of that, the, the city ended up acquiring a, uh, an old 100 acre mall site. So, I got the, the fun story there is uh, you know, many of us across the U.S. have what we call dying malls. Right. Yeah. You, know, you know, back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, we all went to these indoor malls. They were great. Well, now they're going through their second and third generation, and the the Westminster Mall was actually on the uh, the cover of Dead Mall magazine.
0: <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> I didn't even know there was a magazine, Dead Mall magazine. But yeah, I, I, I've I've said before, if you can be the guy that reinvents what malls should be used for, um, mm-hmm. you're going to make a lot of money.
1: Yeah. So we're right in the mix of that. In fact, the the city very entrepreneurial in that in that space because we acquired them all right on the hills of the you know great recession, right? It was like t- 2009, 2010 timeframe. And we initially were trying to attract master developers, just come in, buy out the hundred acres, redevelop it into, you know, whatever, uh, with that vision, the city had though, and we can never come to terms. The, the private sector, again, the funding wasn't there, the capital markets wouldn't support reinvesting into a mall site. And so the city had this bold vision to go out and actually build a new downtown. And so we literally, developed lots and blocks, uh, built the horizontal infrastructure from road, water, sewer, regional stormwater detention, and then we started a process of selling it off to uh, private developers for a mixed-use community. And um, this is where I pivoted from being the hard civil civil engineer, and then I actually worked over in economic development, which I've been doing for the past uh, five, six years now. And one of the things to, again, listening to many of the folks you interviewed previously, is particularly as an engineer, architect, contractor, and the skill sets you have are so valuable and they're multifaceted. And I just encourage anybody, man, don't don't sell yourself short, man. Look to opportunities to advance those same skill sets in other spaces. And so very quickly, I went from you know doing Manning's equations and Hazen-Williams and equations and engineering to. Uh, negotiating LOIs, NDAs, and PSAs and everything else, right? (laughs) A whole new acronym group that I wasn't (laughs) used to. And, uh, you know, now we're about $450 million of private investment into this uh, mixed-use downtown, and uh, we're only about 30% into it. But for me, it's all about relationships, all about rebuilding community because a kid who grew up in the area going to the Westminster Mall, uh, hanging out in the game room, you know, trolling Spencers and, those other places bring <laughs> the mall, right? Um, it's fun to actually. I haven't heard place.
0: Spencer's in a long time. <laughs> I know, right? That's that's, that's a throwback. Uh, I think proof that the mall is dying. Exactly. Um, well, that's that's awesome. Is there are there any statistics around the return on investment to the to the community that you can share?
1: Yeah, sure. It's huge, I gotta tell you. So big investment up front, but as a city, yep. we have different tools from you know, tax increment financing and setting up an ur- urban renewal authority that oversees that land. And we also established a general improvement district that'll always reinvest dollars into that. So a uh, long story short, we put about thirty million in acquisition, another thirty million in uh, infrastructure and then another probably $20 million in upfront incentives to get the project started with the vision. And the long-term wow. return of that, will literally break even here in about another uh, seven years, eight years from now. And then from that point forward, BJ, it's all net to the city, right? It's reinvesting in the community. It's establishing those markets that didn't previously exist from uh, residential, commercial. Uh, we have a you know, hotel on the site. We have an Alamo draft house. Uh, on the site. uh, We have, you know, local independent bookstores. We have a team that curates um, local restaurants and, you know, purveyors in the area to just look to get that fabric of the community, right? It's not, and again, nothing against your national big box retailers, but they're not a good fit for what we're trying to create is that, that community, that connection, uh, the entertainment, the activation. We talk about experiential retail. I mean, we're not looking at 30,000, 80,000 square foot, you know, big box stores. It's the five and 10,000 mom and pops that, um, yeah. you know, truly drive our economy.
0: That's, it's pretty awesome. Um, so you've gotten a play master developer for this project.
1: Yeah, we're in this quasi master developer role, which is, uh, again, pretty new and exciting. And we've had, and just so you know, we've had people from Gwinnett County, Georgia, San Bernardino County, California, recently Palm Desert, uh, all flew out just to see what are you guys doing? Because like you said earlier, there are dying malls all across the united states and what we've done is something a little bit unique and different uh, risky challenging and we can talk about the political environments you know over time uh, to make these things happen but uh, you know i always tell people I, I truly have one of the greatest jobs in the world like i get to build a city within a city you know all of our yeah. projects are lead silver certified it's required as part of our purchase and sale agreement we mandate that those things happen, we have you know, sustainability in practice, um, and we have a lot of just creative people doing unique things that uh, uh, are just really fun to be a part of. Very,
0: very cool. Uh, I would love to hear some of the, you know, we, we go into kind of lessons learned in projects mm-hmm. and I think that that, like most projects, politics do get a vote in how these things play out. So. I'm sure you weren't just navigating developers, not just navigating financing, but you're navigating the politics uh, and the communities that, that are the the end user, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the experience and uh, lessons learned. Yeah, no, it's, that's great.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, one of the things that I, you know, in hindsight, I wish I would have done was have a, uh, established a charter for the vision with the council mm-hmm. that was, you know, the body that put it in place, right? Um, because now I'm sitting there and I got almost brand new counsel five, six years later, and they're looking at it saying, what are you guys doing? Why are you doing that? I thought this is terrible. You know, I literally had one counselor a few years ago who took out a full paid ad ad in the newspaper saying we were going the wrong direction on the project. I'm like, dude, we're into this thing for over a (laughs) hundred million. It's probably not the right time to say turn, you know, and go a different direction. So it's, it's being able to communicate that. But so, in any sort of political environment, those relationships and the ability to effectively communicate the vision, uh, effectively communicate that return on the investment that isn't just dollars, but it's community oriented. Uh, the, the sustainability of the, the site long-term and what those things mean in very tangible ways. And so anytime I get a, a, somebody in the you know kind of political realm that is a naysayer of the project, that just means I have to do more work to go sell the vision, right? You can't get the the buy-in until you get the believe-in, and sometimes that's a really hard conversation with our uh, political, um, you know, elected officials because they kind of get it, they understand it from one point of view, or they hear it from their constituents, and so you know, it, you, here's the thing in local government there are two truths. One is Um, you'll never make everybody happy, ever, period. Um, Number two, you never realize how many crazy people there really are in the world until you work for local government. (laughs) Because everybody gets a mic, man. They can show up on Monday nights at our city council and spout off to whatever, and it doesn't have to be laced with any sort of truth whatsoever. Uh, But that all said, yeah, I think uh, having a charter up front would have been valuable. Uh, All it does now is I just, you know, when I'm out on site, back to I can't make everybody happy ever, um, all the time, which is when we first scraped the entire mall, I had people driving up and saying, when are you guys going to do something? There's a big pile of dirt out here. Hurry up and get it built. Right. And then fast forward a few years later, and then I get the people driving by saying, man, you've blocked my view. Slow down. You're building. It <laughs> it's like, I get it. You know and it is? It's yeah. just, communication is so key in everything we do.
0: Can't make everybody happy. Uh, mm-hmm. and i like to believe in before you get the buy-in, uh, I would typically push a little bit more on on project challenges, but near and dear to my heart is the book you wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's of interest to me because I'm trying to write a book as we speak. Oh, so I'm cool. very curious about uh, the process, but I'm also curious about what inspired you to write the book.
1: Yeah, no, great question, BJ. So back to my private sector days, again, I was the guy, you know, giving a lot of leeway to go out, me with uh, potential you know, clients, uh, different cities, try to build those relationships, go to networking events. I know Tim Glabunde was on your uh, show a few weeks back and his book made me laugh with a network like an introvert. Uh, But (laughs) it was, it was like, man, you go to these events and you try to get, you know, collect business cards, then you're making cold calls, you're trying to to build relationships. And then, you know, I just, it felt like it was failure after failure with a few successes in (laughs) between. And it was so challenging. So then I remember uh, when I first started working for the city, I got to all of a sudden see it from the other side, and I got to see it from the side of the the selection committees, the the consultants that were building relationships before the RFPs came out, uh, the questions that were being asked, those those qualifications uh, that we were looking for, and what was fascinating to me was is a couple things, you know, one is there's not a huge gap between the consultants that are selected versus the ones that aren't, but that that thin slice between is massive. And it's all about those relationships. Yeah. You know, if and everybody knows this on a seller doer do model. If you don't have that relationship before the RFP comes out, probably don't waste your time. Like it's right. gonna be really, really <laughs> tough um, because you just you have to know who the players are in the field. It's a small community of design professionals that we work with. And so in that space, I really got to take a lot of just data and understand what was the difference between the very successful consultants and the ones who just missed it? And that was just, it was absolutely eye opening to me. And so that was one of the inspirations for me to go and actually write this book was to just share some of those observations uh, that I personally witnessed working for the city being on the other side of the table. And so I kind of share, I think, seven different areas from just building those relationships, you know, communication. Uh, generosity, Things that you wouldn't necessarily always think of are key for winning a project, but in just me sitting on the other side, I'm like, God, that made a big difference. Um, and I'll have yeah. to share a couple of those stories with you as well.
0: Well, I, I want to highlight the, the name of the book. It's RFP, Request for Personality, Win People, Win Projects. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree with you. Uh, I, I guess I got that experience also when I was with the Corps of Engineers, I was on selection committees and it was like, you can read a lot of pages of resumes and project experience, but tell me how you're going to help us. Tell me what, like, what do you bring that somebody else doesn't bring and and show me that the relationship matters, not just that it's, it's, you know, about just the technical approach and the cost at the end of the day, because it's not. And to your point, you know, the relationship matters because, on the public side, you're, you're a steward of the public investment, mm-hmm. and, and quite literally the public investment on your project. So you're managing that risk, and you know that relationships are the best way to manage risk because then you, you, you get people you can rely on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm really curious. Now I, I remember you saying, I, I would love to get into some of the, the lessons learned if you want to hit them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you also said that you and your wife were writing books at the same time.
1: So, yeah, no, thanks for asking that question, BJ, because, you know, I would tell you, as an engineer, the last thing we're known for is probably our quality of writing (laughs) uh, from that perspective. But my wife was an exceptional writer and uh, kind of short story, long story, I'll keep short. But um, uh, my wife and I adopted all three of our kiddos through foster care here in Colorado. And my oldest daughter was the very first baby relinquished under the safe haven law here in Colorado, and that particular law is across all 50 states of the U.S., and it basically states that um, any mom, dad, whatever, that's in a situation where they can't care for a newborn in Colorado, it's within 72 hours after birth, they can drop that child off at either a fire station or a hospital, police station, and no questions asked. And then the baby is taken to the hospital make sure they're cared for, and then ultimately they're adopted. And so my wife and I got to adopt the very first baby here in Colorado under that safe haven law. And what's really important is back then and still now, sadly, you'll hear stories of babies being, you know, newborns thrown into trash cans and and just horrific things. And then worse yet, the biological mother finds themselves uh, facing murder charges. And so mm-hmm. the law that has been passed that my daughter is now a huge advocate for, by the way, she's just graduated high school and she's asked to speak at different events. And, um, you know, do fundraising to raise awareness about this particular law, uh, because it's it's vital for uh, especially young mothers that might be in that precarious situation to know there is an option out there that is uh, full of life and uh, you know uh, can thrive long term. And my you know my daughter uh, can't say enough great things about the biological mom that gave birth to her and chose life for her. Uh, and obviously, my wife and her are super excited about that. So fast forward. Um, so when my my mother-in-law was uh, had a heart attack and and uh, she was telling my wife she's like look uh, before I die I want you to start writing a book about that experience and so after my mother-in-law passed away my wife said I got to write it and so she mm-hmm. you know, ended up hiring a, a coach to help her uh, develop a book it's called Fire Station Baby and uh, you know on Amazon that kind of stuff but uh, yeah so as she was writing that um, I kind of would tag along with her coach and start thinking about ideas and um, and then literally just took you know those whatever, 10 plus 15 years of experience in the private sector and the public sector and started to scribble down what I think were key elements uh, to develop that book. And so we literally uh, published those books about the same time. I think it was in October of 2014 uh, that those both went live.
0: A little in-house rivalry to get to to
1: publish first? Not not too much. (laughs) I I think I may have hit send first because I was going to a... um, a conference where I was going to be speaking for the first time on that book. And, uh, uh, it was a blast, but yeah, no, both got out there and, and it's just a lot of fun. It, it definitely, um uh, just a passion of ours to go share those stories. I mean, that's the number one thing is to how we can, you know, serve and give and, and do things that might inspire and help other people.
0: Now through, through your book, you've gotten speaking engagements. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So I do different speaking engagement, different uh, training events, uh, not only here in Colorado, but, um, I was out in, um, uh, Uh, Jekyll Island, uh, Georgia, there a couple of years ago, Uh, got to go speak to the APWA, Georgia chapter, American Public Works Association and uh, Las Vegas and kind of back and forth. And it's it's been fun just to get out in that space. And uh, and again, just hopefully as a guy who loves self-development, like I love I learn something from everybody. That's why I'm just avid podcast listener and it's been fun just to listen to a number of really amazing people that you've been in. taught from you know the enr editor to uh, just so many great great folks but um so yeah that's that's kind of some of the fun things i do is go and do some training some uh some paid some free just because well i like to give back into that space
0: that's great what what is one thing like or, or what is the number one thing that you've gotten from writing that book
1: you know i think it's always surprising to me, the feedback I get sometimes, like <laughs> there's, you know, there, I talk about this dissonance when, um, you know, when you like something and somebody else likes something all of a sudden, or that same thing, you, you're like, hey, cool, I, I like that product or that, that thing, and so now we, we, we're going to be friends. Or if they don't <laughs> like something that you don't like, well, hey, I like you because you don't like the same thing I don't like. So there's one little <laughs> paragraph in the book that I mentioned that I don't like mushrooms, And then I I called it out right after and said, so anybody who's reading the book says, oh, you don't like mushrooms? I don't like you all this. And I got to be, I literally had one of my colleagues say, dude, I read that. I'm like, that was, I I don't like you anymore. I'm like, I know. (laughs) Um, So it's just funny to me, the things that people will pull out of the book. Um, But most importantly, it's all about, again, relationships, connection, and and helping. I've had consultants come up to me years later and said, John, you were the first one that I remember talking to about this stuff that... um, You've really helped me become a better leader in the engineering space, uh, and for me, that's huge, right? That is huge. Um, and I, you know, I think i mentioned to you guys uh, in previous correspondence. One of my good friends, Dave Scudis, who was, you know, after I wrote my book, he and I started talking, and he wrote a great book called *The Effective Client*. And um, you know, <laughs> he, he talks about this, and I'm sure you'll get a chance to chat with him as well. But the uh, he called it the the pain in the ass factor, the PETA, as <laughs> a, a way that public sector companies uh, get charged a different rate based upon how difficult they are to work with. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I didn't know where am I on that scale of one to 10, Dave, you know, cause he has the data. Uh, so anyway, you just, you get to meet great people that then they're inspired to go do great things. And for me, that's the greatest reward.
0: Yeah, the the PETA factor. I've never heard that one before. I like that. Tuck that one away. Inspiring people in places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE verified service disabled veteran owned small business at MCFA. Our why is to inspire people in places through project leadership. We provide planning strategy program management and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. Moving into a little bit more of a rapid-fire question, uh, Q&A. Um, I think we we really hit on that you're involved with your family. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else that you're involved with outside of the office?
1: Yeah, you know, mostly it's it's all family. It's it's uh, you know, I uh, with my church group, things like that. It's uh, I'm an, I'm one of the directors on the APWA, so we get. Uh, one of the things we're seeing across the industry right now is just workforce development, particularly for yeah. public sector employees. Um, it's tough. I mean, it's tough across the globe, but very specifically in any sort of construction industry, when you think about the impact that the the pandemic and recessions have had, you know, I tell my kids all the time is so, that, you know, not only find a recession proof job, but look for one that's also pandemic proof. Like, are you an essential worker? Uh, what does that look like long-term? Because this won't be the last time we go through this stuff. Um, History repeats itself in that space, so being prepared for that those areas, and so we're actively working to try to figure out how do we develop that next generation of folks that maybe college isn't the right move, maybe it's a uh, you know a community college, maybe it's just getting those skills to go operate a backhoe, a forklift, and in the value that you bring to the community by doing those things. And uh, uh, so we're and, and
0: to and to yourself and your family, I, right. I think that is something that's. Uh... I don't know if you know. There's a stigma to not going to college, and a lot of people end up going to college even though they don't want to, or or mm-hmm. it's not right for them. And uh, I I do think that the industry as a whole needs to break down that barrier, mm-hmm. and and make make people feel like uh, labor jobs and and you know that there, there's a path to success, and and there's upward mobility in that path, right? Going from an inspector to a superintendent to a project executive, um, you know. Through through the construction industry, Um, we're hearing it everywhere, especially with the Infrastructure uh, and Jobs Act. It's like you got to have people to do the work. You
1: have to absolutely, Uh, and I'm going to tell you, for those who are in those uh, public sector side of things, it's like we got to modify the way our hiring processes look. You know, why do I have to have a bachelor's or an associates to get these jobs? Uh, We got to think differently about those qualifications and the skill sets they bring. In more of the you know we all know this but the soft skills are probably even more valuable in many cases than the technical skills like i can teach the technical skills but if i don't have somebody that has the integrity uh the work ethic the the positive attitude the technical skills yeah forget about it yeah
0: yeah the bachelor's doesn't mean anything doesn't mean anything yep uh favorite quote
1: oh yeah so i think I, two things one i love quotes i got a bunch in the back of my book as well but um, One of the ones I start off with in my book is is literally all things being equal, people will work with people they like. All things not being equal, they still will. (laughs) It's it's by John Maxwell, and again, he was uh, one of the authors that uh, when I was right out of college, again, engineering school, like big thick books, I literally have one class away from a minor in mathematics. I mean, it's just the the volume of information you have to take into those four years, four point five years for me. That was a little bit slow. But uh to get through all that stuff, like I never read for fun ever. Like that wasn't enjoyable to me. So getting out of college and actually being introduced to books that were enjoyable to read. So that was one of the first ones was uh developing the leader within you by John Maxwell. And I just loved it. And it changed my thoughts around how I could actually develop myself and enjoy reading at the same time.
0: John Maxwell is is a fan favorite of mine. Um, so speaking of him A must-read book or a most gifted book is it? Whether it's John or or somebody else, we already hit your book, so we know that's a must-read.
1: Yeah, no, and that's my book's a quick read, man. That's like an airplane ride, so no bigs. But uh, hey, uh, being in my new position as this economic vibrancy manager for the city, there are some skills that I quite frankly didn't have going into that role, and one of the biggest ones that I realized is applicable to not only economic development but truly engineering, architecture, construction, development particularly development, which is negotiation. You have to know how to be an effective negotiator. And so I came across this book. So, I, you know, again, I read it, read a it ton, love these things, but one of my favorites is a book called Never Split the Difference by Chris Boss. You've heard of it? Yeah. <laughs> I, I know it. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, Chris, he was, uh, you know, 28 years in the FBI as an international hostage negotiator. And I loved his book, the title particularly, right, which is Never Split the Difference. And it kind of shares the story of... You know, in most typical, common negotiations, right? And I put that in air quotes. Uh, if somebody was asking, "Hey, I want to sell this for a thousand, you offer five hundred. Hey, we'll split the difference. I'll buy it for seven fifty, right? But he yep. says, "You don't do that with hostages." <laughs> you don't say, "Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, Mister Honduras." So you you have four hostages. I will tell you what, you keep two. I'll take two. We'll call it a day. Like you don't do that, <laughs> right? Um, and so his book is all about the premise of getting everything that you want and still having the other side like you, which was fascinating yeah. to me. And so he talks about how to negotiate, not only for raises, but how to buy a car and, and in a different, you know, very tactical ways that take a lot of the common negotiation skills, but move them in a very um, thoughtful, strategic way uh, that I've been able to apply in my role now. And uh, it's just been fun. So that, that's a great book of anybody who has interest in uh, negotiating skills.
0: i I agree and and i think it you know we negotiate all the time we persuade all the time Mm -hmm. we may not you know in leadership that's all that we're doing and it reminded the book reminded me of stephen covey you know the seven habits of highly effective people think win-win and it's like it's not Mm -hmm. just zero or 100 it's not just you know it's how do we look at this differently and that's what i like the the whole concept is look at it from each other's perspectives Mm -hmm. figure figure out how do you you know how do you quote meet in the middle without meeting in the middle? Mm-hmm. Um, so think win win. Exactly. Uh, debtor of life, If you could hang out with three people for a day, who would they be? What would you do?
1: Yeah, no, appreciate that. I uh, mean, this was this was tough, man. 'Cause I'm just kind of in the moment. There's so many amazing people, and like I said, I, I spend like I love my family, my wife, my kiddos. Like uh, that's the number one thing for me is hanging out with them. So I've, I kind of went back into my own personal family history, right? Because I think a lot of great leaders. I read their books. I can listen to biographies, whatever. Um, but for me, probably the first one was my my grandmother. Uh, she was this great Irish Catholic gal, uh, you know, married this Spanish guy here in Colorado and had 11 kids. It's just fascinating, you know, back in 1954, in this little, you know, three-room brick house. And so I'd, I literally felt like I was raised by her for so many years. And so you know, on her wall in, in her house was two pictures. One was Jesus, one was John F. Kennedy. You know, it's like, um <laughs> that's my like, grandmother oh. too. <laughs> right. Back in that that era. And so, you know, I just love to uh, just spend some time with her and her sister, grab some tea and talk about like, how was it, you know, living in that generation? And and what are some things you see today that, you know, you think I should be doing differently? Because she was not at all uh I would say, timid about telling me to, hey, Johnny John, <laughs> get your stuff, get it, get it. <laughs> what are you doing?
0: <laughs> and so, like only a grandmother can.
1: Oh, man, absolutely. So that's the first. The second was my, uh, you know, my dad, uh, he actually died from liver cancer at the age of 45. He was a Vietnam veteran. And uh, BJ, he never talked about it. He never talked hmm. about his experience in the Corps. Um, he was actually sadly uh, uh, less than honorably j- discharged. I don't know why. Like, I don't know why. And I'd I like to spend some time just understanding, like, what was going on? Like, what happened? Yeah. That led you down that path? I mean, you know, I get a lot of the Vietnam vets, you know, that I do get a chance to talk to. Is the first thing I do is just, man, thank you for your service. That was a really, really hard, really hard time for them. Um, so that'd be the second one. My, um, my third is a little more close to home. My, my youngest, uh, our younger brother was uh, 36, and he died from a heart attack. And, wow. uh, you know, the last time I saw him was in my house helping me. You know, paint right, and uh, uh, just way too soon, man. And so, just being able to uh, hang out with him and smile and laugh and uh, reminisce about, uh, you know, the old days. So, yeah, those are the the first three that came to my mind is, uh, kind of looked at that question.
0: Hitting me in the gut today, John. Oh, dude, I'm sorry, BJ. <laughs> no, it's great, and I want to comment on the Vietnam era. Uh, those veterans were not treated right, and uh, it's because of them that uh, a number of them have been the advocates that ensured our generation coming back from war, yeah. you know, the whole support the warrior, even if you don't support the war.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and, and I think they all had PTSD in some way, shape or form, and nobody, nobody was identifying it and, and we let it go too long. So yeah. um, I'm so sorry to hear that about your father. Yeah, not um, that. Legacy, what do you want on your tombstone? How do you want to be remembered?
1: <laughs> Again, such a hard one, BJ. Um, <laughs> the tr- the truth of the matter is, uh, for me, it's it's every day um, being present in the moment with my my whoever I'm talking to. Right, is not being distracted thinking about what's next, but being in that moment. So for me, it's you know, if it was a tombstone, it'd probably say something like, "Hey, John's not here." <laughs> like, <laughs> don't live your life to the fullest, man. Add value to everyone you meet. Like, I just think that's my mantra. Is no matter who I'm in contact with. I know a couple things, I'm going to learn something from them as long as I shut up and ask questions, right? Because I already know everything inside my head, I want to learn something, so I'm going to ask him <laughs> questions. Um, and I just want to add value, man, it's like whatever that space is. Uh, and again, it, it's not you know one on 2,000, it's one on one that those interactions and those, those things truly change and just, you know, particularly for my kids, if they make fun of me today, when i come home and i say hey i listened to this great podcast today and this is what i learned and they're like oh geez there we go again dad um but i hope that someday those words will ring back in their minds and think hey you know what maybe there's some truth to that maybe i should go you know explore that
0: yeah i i can't agree more um closing inspiration any challenge to engineers out there we covered a lot of ground um anything for our entrepreneurial public servants or our public servants who are trying to be more entrepreneurial anything to share with them as we close out
1: you know i think the biggest thing is uh, i talk a lot about this in my training class but it's it's that don't sell yourself short i mean there are when i say that you know put it this way we talk a lot about creativity you hear a lot about that And every time I hear that word creativity, I think about there's some guy with a man bun with his Mac Air Pro sitting on a beach (laughs) floating, right? And it's like, oh, he's being creative, right? Um, But man, there are no more creative people than anybody in the AEC industry, developers included. And I find that that creativity comes through constraints and Mm -hmm. we are all constrained by both time and money and now talent. And so, it's through those very challenging constraints that the most creative people come to, to bear. And in this industry, man, there's nobody more brilliant than the AEC group. And it's when you work together collaboratively to solve really hard problems that ultimately save people's lives, keep people safe. From bridges to buildings to water to wastewater plants to everything in between. Uh, we are are at the key and the core of every one of those things. And so when you're out talking to people, it's like, I'm able to tell the story. So what do you do? I I run equations all day. No, I'll just (laughs) briefly share this story, which is, you know, there is a a story about a lady who went to go interview some construction workers at a job site and went up to to the first one and say, hey, what are you doing? And he's like, well, I'm pouring some concrete. What does it look like? (laughs) Oh, okay, sorry. And so, you know, she kept walking to the next contract and say, well, what are you doing? It's like, well, I'm just pouring the foundation. Okay. Sounds great. And then, you know, she walked over to the third contractor and asked him, so what are you doing? He's like, we're going to change kids' lives. We're building an orphanage for this community. And they're going to get these kids a place to be safe, to live, to thrive. And so all three were very clear and specific and they weren't lying. But the third had the vision, the why. And so I find in our industry, we sometimes, you know, I'll speak for myself, you get so tactical in the day to day operations that you forget how to tell the story and connect on an emotional level with your audience. Because when you can do that, it changes everything.
0: Believe in, then the buy in. I right. can't, I, I agree 100%. And I, I think that is what leadership's all about. Mm-hmm. And I am so thankful for your time sharing your leadership experience. Uh, John, where can people connect with you or, or take a look at what's going on in Westminster?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, a couple of places. Uh, you can obviously find me at uh, my old website uh, www. Uh, uh, John D. So uh, D in the middle. So johndburk.com com. Uh, you can just click a link, drop me an email, my personal account from there. Uh, find me at the City of Westminster, Colorado uh, Economic Development. Uh, kind of my name's plastered all over that thing as well, and. Uh, mobile number cell, all that good stuff. And I love to connect. I mean, anybody out there who's in that space or if you <laughs> have a dead mall in your neighborhood, man, you want some advice, happy to, <laughs> to help there you get that stuff too, buddy.
0: John, thank you so much. It was great having you. Uh, look forward to staying in touch with you. That sounds
1: great, BJ. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Hey, everybody, if you enjoy this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review. And please share this with other entrepreneurial public servants. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch. Until next time, have a great week and a great weekend.